Good afternoon. Welcome to the Center for American Progress. My name is Brian Katoulis. I'm a fellow here at the Center for American Progress. Um, this is the fifth in ten discussions, ten panel discussions we've had on Iraq. Uh, we're about halfway through it. The Center has been engaged in the Iraq debate for the last uh, four and a half years or so on many levels with uh, policy papers and analyses. We've visited to the region and Iraq quite frequently and we hold discussions like this and we're really honored to have our guests here uh, to give us a, a different perspective, a perspective uh, from the ground in Iraq. Uh, before we get underway, I just would like everybody to uh, turn off their cell phones and pagers um, so that we don't interrupt today's discussion. What we're going to do is have a, a bit of a discussion with our guests and uh, about halfway through I'll open it up and uh, we'll ask any members of the press corps to ask questions and then we'll open it up to everybody else. We'll aim to uh, close out about 1, 1.30 or so. Uh, to my right is Nir Rosen, who is a fellow at uh, NYU's Center for Law and Security. He has spent most of the last five years in Iraq um, on the ground. He speaks Arabic. He's written, you've seen his pieces in The New Yorker, in most recently Rolling Stone, and a number of publications. And his most recent book, The Triumph of the Martyr, uh, is coming out in paperback later this month. To my left is Michael Ware, who's a correspondent with uh, CNN in Iraq. He was Times Ma Time Magazine's Baghdad bureau chief before that, and he's been in Iraq for more than five years. And when I saw Michael uh, in Pakistan recently, we talked a lot about uh, what's going on in Iraq, and we talked about you know when the U.S. is going to withdraw or redeploy, and we also talked about when Michael Ware is going to re redeploy from Iraq. Um, I'd like to start out with Michael because he was just most recently there. Uh, with a very general question. Here we are five years later, uh, nearly five years to the day, not quite, since Saddam's statue fell, and you probably remember that very well. Where do things stand? You know, we have a debate here in Washington. What, from, from the broad perspective, what's the situation on the ground in Iraq? Well, obviously, as you know, this war still continues to this day. It beats on relentlessly. Even though I know it's dropped off the radar for so many people here in America, there's great Iraq fatigue here within the media. Am I not turned on, maybe? Oh, the thing? Okay. You think I'd know that working in TV? <laughs> <coughs> Sorry, yeah, so I know there's Iraq fatigue and it's off the radar, but the war very much continues and the dying very much continues. And that's very obvious, yet it's also very real and something that that's very present for all of us who are there. It's something it's we live with quite a lot. The situation there at the moment is that obviously you all know that the, the current framework for viewing the American mission in Iraq is essentially through the prism of the so-called surge. Now, in many ways this has been represented or has come to be considered as the deployment of an additional 30,000 combat troops to reinforce the capital Baghdad with a couple of extra marine battalions to head into the rest of western Anbar province. And the purpose of this, as it was stated, was to essentially stabilise the situation in the capital to try and curb the horrific levels of sectarian violence that we saw 
particularly last year, and to buy breathing room for a political process to take place, hopefully moving towards reconciliation. So where's the situation now? Violence is down. That being said, it's a very relative thing. Easily, in any given month, 600 Iraqi civilians are dying. Now, that's half of the rate at which they were dying last year, but that's still 600 innocents lost each and every month. American combat deaths have been pretty much halved. So everyone is grateful that there has been some relative relief in the bloodletting. Now that was a core purpose of the new strategy that President Bush announced back in January 10 last year. However, there's greater realities behind that. These, these achievements, for what they are, this dampening of the violence, comes with great cost and great consequence and may have enormous future ramifications. Now, much of this has been achieved not so much by the additional US forces, but in my opinion, first and foremost, by newfound American political accommodation of its enemies. First and foremost amongst those are the Sunni insurgents. Now the insurgency has always been a diverse mix of different factions with different agendas as Nia truly well knows. But certainly the, the backbone of it or the majority of it are former members of Saddam's military and intelligence apparatus men who by and large are fighting for a host of reasons, but primarily they're, they're secular reasons. It's either about power or it's about reclaiming honour and prestige. Or as, as some of the senior insurgent commanders told me many, many years ago, they'd adopted a very Clausewitzian approach. They were using the military confrontation as a means to achieve a political end. And that was simply to get a seat at the negotiating table, to get a, uh, a chair at the, you know, at the table of power, something which they felt they'd been denied and they felt disenfranchised. Now, from the very beginning, these men had said that we had never sided with al-Qaeda, and even under Saddam's regime, they were not harboured here in Iraq. We're vehemently opposed to Iran. <clears throat> America was our ally in the 80s. We're more than happy to have the occupier transform into a guest. And one of the key quotes that was given to me way back in late 2003 was we'd be prepared to, to host US bases akin to Germany and Japan. So essentially what they were offering was a deal. They did not understand how they ended up on the wrong side of this American conflict. And what they saw was that the American mission had brought into power, first by appointment through the Iraqi Governing Council and then through 
two elections were administrations dominated by exiles whose true loyalties were questionable given their links to external powers or neighbouring countries. In the beginning of these discourses, which began in 2004 by US special forces, other US agencies, and by American diplomats on the ground, in 2004 they began talking to the Sunni insurgency. Now back then, the condition was from the American side that we're prepared to talk, but we must include the Iraqi government. This must be a tripartite discussion leading to a tripartite agreement. The insurgents at that point said, look, this government is our enemy and they're your enemy too. And if you don't know that, then we have nothing to discuss. Something like four years later, agreement was found between America and the Sunni insurgents. And on pretty much the terms that were originally offered, and as even the multinational forces spokesman, Major General Kevin Bergner, openly admits, it's a bilateral arrangement. The Iraqi government was not made party to this. Now that tells you a lot about the way the American mission views the Iraqi government as a partner. So by taking 90,000 Sunni fighters or facilitators or supporters off the battlefield and empowering them locally to protect their own neighbourhoods, putting them into police uniforms, allowing them to carry weapons and man checkpoints with US permission and support. And indeed, of these 90,000 odd that we have at the moment, 70,000 insurgents are now on the US government payroll, receiving $300 a month. Obviously, that did an enormous things to reduce the level of violence coming from the Sunni insurgency. Indeed, in Anbar province to the west, attacks dropped by 90% against US forces. Now, as a result of this, the Sunnis went out after Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda had overplayed its hand. From the very beginning, the Sunnis said that we were forced, you forced us to ally with Al-Qaeda. You gave us no other option. And then Al-Qaeda overplayed its hand, by which time America was starting to look at the situation differently and the Sunnis were much more willing to compromise. Hence the deal was made, which first began way back in 2006, but really, really came to a head in the spring of last year. So not only did the number of attacks drop, because suddenly most of the men attacking America were now on America's side, but these men knew where Al-Qaeda slept at night. It was an American assassination program in many ways. There is indeed video of these men in US supplied police vehicles, US supplied police uniforms, taking Al-Qaeda members out into the desert and shooting them on camera. So that put enormous pressure onto Al-Qaeda. It denied them sanctuary they once had, and it forced them to put much more energy into movement and concealment. So they made it much more difficult for them to project power and attack from sanctuaries, because they'd lost those. And now they're still there, but they must remain much more fluid. So that's a key part of what's brought down 
some of the levels of violence. Another key part of this is political accommodation of one of the leading Shia actors in the country, Saad Muqtada al-Sada. Muqtada al-Sada has broad support on the Shia Iraqi street. And obviously he created his own militia, the Mehdi Army. Now, they have weight of numbers, and at first they were not the most effective fighting force, but they've since developed. He then developed a political front and has as many as 30 seats in Parliament and controlled six ministries, including the Ministry of Health. Where Muqtada was once an American target, he is now seen as an American political ally and he is praised constantly at the highest levels of the American command. And American officers in the field will openly concede that the soldiers and police they're now training are Medi Army. In fact, I've just come out of a Medi Army dominated neighborhood of Baghdad known as Shula. And there, the Iraqi Army Battalion that partners the US is drawn from the neighborhood. Now, if you live in that neighborhood and you want to put on a government uniform, you better have the permission of the Medi Army or you're going to wake up dead in your home. And the Americans know that, but they said, we're prepared to work with anyone who's looking for peace. It's cutting these deals has been a fundamental part of the situation we now see. And much of that is irrelevant to the 30,000 troops. Now, other things have happened too within the city. During the height of the sectarian violence, which was inflamed by the February 2006 bombing of the holy Shia shrine of the Golden Dome in Samarra, in Baghdad, sectarian violence, according to US military figures, is down between 92 and 97%. We're certainly not finding 40, 50 tortured, mutilated, beheaded bodies on the streets of the capital each and every day. That number has now fallen down to single digits. The morgue's no longer overflowing with the unknown dead. But how is that achieved and what's the cost? That's achieved by, firstly, America using these Sunnis and Sunni insurgents as American-backed militias to counterweight the Iranian-backed militias so that each can protect their own communities and prevent the rival death squads from entering those communities and taking people away. Also, there's physical barriers that the Americans have installed. Sunni communities are surrounded by massive blast barriers. Shia communities are surrounded by massive blast barriers. And in so many ways, never the twain shall meet. Indeed, I have a friend of mine, just an example, had to buy a birthday cake. Normally he buys a birthday cake from a particular neighborhood. This year he couldn't buy that birthday cake from that neighborhood because he would have to cross the sectarian divide. So now communities live within these walled off blast zones and the necessities of daily life must be sourced in your own neighborhood or oftentimes you can't get them. Now, that's torn at the very fabric of Iraqi society. It is a segregated capital. That's going to have enormous consequences. It does already, and it will going on into the future. There's also been a political surge where the diplomatic mission has been trying to push through legislation and force reconciliation, which has had 
mixed results at best. And there's a number of other elements. That's essentially where we are right now. Violence is down, but in some ways it's on the surface. A lot is boiling underneath. And at the end of the day, the surge and many of the elements that comprise it do not address what has now become perhaps the chief dynamic of the war. Don't let people tell you that this is a war against Al-Qaeda. This war is now a competition for influence and of interest between Washington and Tehran. And that's based in Iraq and it has broad regional ramifications and is very intricately tied into Iran's nuclear energy ambitions. So that's the situation. Violence is down, but there's a big story behind it. Th thank you, Michael. And I think that's a good starting point. Um, Nir, um, you've done a lot of reporting on the ground. His book is wonderful, by the way. Uh, in Fallujah, you were on the other side um, of, of the, with, the, with the Sunni and, and did a lot of reporting from that side. What's your view? Uh, how, where do you agree or disagree with Michael? And in particular, when Michael said that uh, these, these Sunni militias, if you call them them, are, are, these men are on America's side. Do you agree with that point? Um, how closely are they on our side if yes? Um, and how do you think things are unfolding over the last couple of weeks? Well, Iraq is Somalia. Um, and maybe that's a positive development. It's fiefdoms controlled by warlords and, and their militias. And, in every f and fiefdoms are walled off, as Michael said. Um, and those militias have consolidated their control over these fiefdoms, and they provide often humanitarian services, as well as electricity and, and uh, uh, gas and other things, and security, fundamentally. Um, and in a way, that's a positive development, because it, even for me as a journalist, now when I go to a neighborhood, I know there's somebody to deal with. And I know that, that I can be reasonably assured of my safety if I uh, call the right warlord uh, in, in advance. And it's also a positive development for humanitarian aid organizations like the Red Cross that can now deal with um, a local warlord much the way they can in Somalia or Afghanistan. Um, so uh, and violence, it, it's true, is down. Uh, I think one of the main reasons is that less people are being killed because there, there's less people to kill. The violence in Iraq was uh, very logical. Remove Sunnis from Shia areas, remove Shias from Sunni areas. And that was a very successful project. It was basically completed. You have a few Sunni pockets left in Baghdad, mostly in western Baghdad, with the exception of Azamiya in, uh, in the east. Um, but the program of sectarian cleansing was successful. So violence being down, you can interpret it as a sign of a tremendous American failure, the failure to protect the civilians of Iraq. Um, and they, they allowed the, the ethnic cleansing to, to reach its completion. And violence is also down because of two separate ceasefires, you could say. Uh, the Mahdi Army freeze, it, it's often mistranslated as a ceasefire. A freeze which was initiated in late uh, August of last year, and immediately when they declared that freeze, you saw a huge drop in violence, which tells you just how responsible uh, the, the Mahdi Army was for much of the violence. And uh, that freeze was a result of, of several factors. One of them, the, the awareness that the Americans were going to go after them. So you might as well lie low and wait for the Americans to leave. But then. Um, Muqtada Sadr himself had lost control over many of his men. They were ill-disciplined. They, they had imposed a reign of terror in many areas. Uh, they were implicated in various crimes, not the least of which, of course, was purging Sunnis fr from uh, Iraq. But even um, 
sort of being a mafia in their own areas. Uh, so this is a great opportunity to lie low. Um, the Americans will respect you, and now they speak of Muqtada, as, as Michael said, with his uh, great respect, um, and, and of his father as well, um, which sounds funny given what they, how they used to talk about him. Um, and he can just wait, and he can consolidate control over his forces and pretend like he's studying to be an Ayatollah in Iran. Um, so you have his freeze. And then you have the Sunni ceasefire at the same time. Sunnis are basically lost. They were fighting Al-Qaeda. They were fighting the Americans. They were fighting the Shias. Their resistance had failed to overthrow the occupation. It had failed to seize any political power. It was a failure. And beginning in 2006, when I met with resistance leaders in Baghdad and Damascus and Jordan, uh, they were suddenly aware, uh, like a shock, oh my god, we lost. And there was a process of soul-searching, blaming Sunni clerics in 2003 for issuing fatwas prohibiting Sunnis from participating in the security forces, which opened the door to greater Shia domination, um, trying to understand what to do now. Um, so they failed to overthrow the American occupation. They had failed to fight the Shia militias, who had basically expelled them from power and physically expelled them from Baghdad. The majority of the refugees outside of Iraq are Sunni. Um, and they were also now experiencing sort of a reign of terror on the part of Al-Qaeda, which, as Michael said, they initially had, had been a very useful tool to defend Sunnis from the Americans and from the Shia militias. But once they had taken over neighborhoods, they began killing Sunnis as well and um, began enforcing their own reign of terror. So what to do, um, at least temporarily, uh, reach a hudna, or a sort of a ceasefire with the Americans get them off of our back. The Americans think that they bought the Sunnis. I think it's the other way around. The Americans never understood the importance of ideology. They always thought that people joined the resistance for money. And if we, and uh, there was just a job, a source of employment. Uh, that's not true. There was a resistance to an occupation. It was motivated by many factors, but none of them really had to do with, with money. There are plenty of better ways to make money in Iraq than to fire an RPG at an, at an American. Um, get work, work with the Americans. Um, so they not only believe that they joined the resistance for money, they also believe now that they have sort of bought their loyalty temporarily. But really, it's the Sunnis who have gotten the Americans off of their back. They were beleaguered. They were being pushed out of Baghdad. Suddenly now, the awakening groups that the Americans call concerned local citizens, critical infrastructure security guards, uh, Iraqi security volunteers. Uh, sons of Iraq. So, uh, yeah, Sons of Iraq, the latest funny euphemism. Suddenly, they control territory in Baghdad. They, uh, they obviously, they control the Anbar province and, and elsewhere, but even in Baghdad, the resistance now has a foothold, uh, which was their dream. Obviously, they wanted to seize territory and establish political control. Um, and these are not just security guards. They have the same ideology, the same political motivations that they had before. They want, they want power. And uh, when I was there uh, in February, I, I accompanied a, a bunch of these guys from Dora in southern Baghdad to Ramadi, where they paid homage to Abu Risha, the important awakening group leader there, and asked to join his political movement. They're hoping that they can uh, become a front. They say there are two occupations in, in Iraq now, the American occupation and the Iranian occupation. This is a, the, sort of the racist Sunni idea that all Shias are Iranian. And you hear this in Lebanon when the, the, uh, the Saudi-backed, Sunni-dominated um, government there s says that Hezbollah is an Iranian tool, or the Shias are loyal to Iran. You hear this from President Mubarak of Egypt, calling Shias fifth columnist. You hear this from King Abdullah of Jordan and from the Saudis. This is a very racist notion throughout the Sunni world that Shias are actually Iranian and not real Arabs. This is patently false throughout the Arab world. Certainly in Iraq, um, Shias view themselves as, as Arabs, as Iraqis, as nationalists. They just have a different view of what that actually means, um, and a, a different view of what, what Iraq should be. Um, where was I going with that? 
Um, well, well, they say we're going to leave, the, leave uh, fighting the American occupation. The Americans are going to leave eventually anyway, but the Iranians are here to stay. And when they say Iranians, they mean the Iraqi government, they mean the Shia militias, the, the Iraqi security forces, um, and that's their main target. So these Iraqi security volunteers um, are really, as Michael said, they're resistance, and they've maintained their political goal. They just found a smarter way to get in through the back door. I mean, this is the, the Shia Islamist government of Iraq. This is their worst nightmare. We defeated these people. We expelled them from Iraq. Now the Americans are letting them into the back door. Uh, the Americans have forced us to promise that we're going to admit a certain number of them into the government. They're not doing that, of course. Uh, for, the, for the most part, the Iraqi government um, is, is not allowing the uh, awakening groups to join. Um, the awakening groups are very upset about that. They complain that when, when they've tried to join, they're harassed and treated as prisoners, as suspects. Um, so there's absolutely no political reconciliation in Iraq. There's zero not on a political level, not on a communal level. The uh, reduction in violence that wasn't a direct result of the surge, but it was a result of uh, things associated with American troops, like, like, as I said, the Mahdi Army not wanting to confront the Americans so they're lying low. Um, there, that, this real reduction in violence has not been met with any sort of political reconciliation. On the contrary, communities are more and more separate. They maintain the same hostility to one another. Uh, you t talk to Mahdi Army guys, or just Shia civ civilians in general, they say the guys who were slaughtering us a few months ago in Al-Qaeda or elsewhere are now part of the uh, awakening groups. Um, and you hear similar things from, from the Sunnis. The one bright spot in the Shia-Shia fighting last week, uh, you could say, is that that's the death of a Shia bloc. Uh, the Mahdi Army and Badr were collaborating in the expulsion of Sunnis from Baghdad up until recently, uh, up until last year. That's not going to happen anymore. Um, so now you might see cross-sectarian alliances, and eventually you might see Sunni militias working once again with the Mahdi army, as they did to fight the American occupation in the first battle of Fallujah. Um, so perhaps you won't see a Sunni-Shia civil war. And again, Iraq will look more like Somalia, with different militias and warlords reaching alliances and, and striking deals occasionally. But when the fundamental problem in Iraq was the, was the militias, and the Americans have now created more militias, or at least backed them, and allowed them to arm themselves and control territory, then uh, obviously that's a very frightening scenario. Um, if you're a Sunni, it's great, because now a neighborhood like Amria, in western Baghdad, for example, is a safe haven. And su thousands of Sunnis from other parts of Baghdad have sought shelter over there. Um, and the, the displaced Iraqis aren't going back to their homes. They're going back to safe neighborhoods. The Iraqi refugees who were in Syria a trickle of whom came back, and there was a lot of fanfare briefly about that. Those guys didn't go to their homes. They went to safe Shia areas, safe Sunni areas, and they became displaced once again. Um, so Iraq has really been irrevocably changed, and uh, these warlords have been empowered. Um, and I think what you'll see eventually is that warlords who control areas with their resources, like oil, will be backed by um, the Americans, the Saudis, or, uh, other countries in the region. Uh, but, there are, but Iraq as a state, doesn't exist. There's no, there's no Iraqi government. When people talk about government, it's sort of laughable. Events in the green zone have never really had any practical ramifications outside because the militia leaders don't live in the green zone. They're on the street. Prime Minister Maliki is irrelevant. Uh, that's, that's not really his fault. We deliberately engineered the office of the Prime Minister to be weak, um, and he doesn't have his own militia. Um, and it didn't, wouldn't really matter. I mean, Iraq is basically a, a bunch of city-states. None of them really care what happens in Baghdad. Mosul doesn't answer to Baghdad. Basra doesn't answer to Baghdad. They're all independent of, of one another, controlled by their own warlords and, and their own militias. Um, the 
Iraqi government provides really no services. Uh, it's different militias control different ministries and are at war with one another. Um, and as we saw last week, uh, the situation is incredibly unstable, and uh, any sort of spark could renew massive amounts of violence. But this time, there's nowhere to run to. Jordan and Syria have closed their borders to refugees. Eleven of Iraq's 18 governors have closed their border to the eternally displaced because they're just overwhelmed. So when the fighting starts again, people won't have anywhere to escape to. They're going to be stuck in their walled-off areas. Um, and potentially, you could actually see much larger slaughters than you did the first time around. Thanks, Nir. Um, very sobering. The one, even though we're discussing Iraq today, the, the one common element is where you ended, too, Iran. And I wanted to ask you, uh, first, if you disagree with anything Nir said, you know, uh, bring it up. But Iran is a real, in the tensions between Tehran and Washington uh, over Iraq. And I know this, you were talking about this uh, special we have coming out in the next few days on the surge. And you interviewed Ambassador Kumi, the Iranian ambassador. And I know you've talked with him. It's hard for many Americans to try to understand what Iran's role is in Iraq, in part because I think our political leaders uh, talk about things in very broad strokes. And the uh, simple fact of the matter, as I understand it, the most recent clashes ended in part because of mediation by Iran in, in places like uh, Qum. And they play an important role. What's, could, could you help dis disentangle? Well, <coughs> you know, they, they support militias and the government. And what, what are they doing? What's their strategy? Well, put it this way, <coughs> as one of the very most senior American officials in Iraq told me not so long ago, the big winner of the last six years is Iran. It's not America, it's not Al-Qaeda, certainly not the Iraqi people. The Taliban were removed from Iran's eastern border and their great threat to the West, the regime of Saddam Hussein, was removed. And not only was it removed, but it was blown away with a vacuum left behind. Now, the Iranians of all players in the region at that time were best placed to capitalize on that vacuum. Now, many, many, many Iraqi Shia had fled to Iran to escape Saddam's regime. Political parties from among Iraqi exiles were created. Paramilitary organizations from Iraqi exiles were created. Indeed, the Bada Brigade, now known as the Bada Organization, was an element of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. And in many ways, to this day, the members of the Bada organization are still administratively treated by the Revolutionary Guard as either serving or formally serving members who continue to receive pensions and, and limited funding. There's certainly lots of support. So what we see is that Nia's right. There is no such thing in any true sense as an Iraqi government. It's a loose rainbow alliance of political factions, most of whom have formidable militia or paramilitary wings, because to this very day, the currency of political power in that country remains 
at the end of a barrel of a gun. Now, of the key components of this Iraqi government, this so-called ally of the United States, those components were either literally formed in Iran, have long received support from Iran or now do receive support from Iran in terms of financial, ideological, sometimes military support, humanitarian support, commerce, business opportunities, political support, or simply as a matter of pragmatism, such as the Kurds in the north, who are not Arabs, who are not Persians, who have their own semi-autonomous region, which is essentially a parallel state in Iraq. There are two governments there. The Kurds are represented in the central government, but then there's the Kurdish regional government, which is protected by the so-called Green Line, which is ever encroaching south as the Kurds push it further and further down into the country. It has a separate government that runs its domain. Only recently and begrudgingly did they really begin flying the Iraqi flag in Kurdistan. Even those guys, particularly among the PUK, the Kurdish political party of the president of Iraq, Jalal Talabani, by matter of necessity, has a very long-standing, very complex, but very well-developed relationship with Iran. And I can tell you now that there's a number of American intelligence agencies that even regard the president of Iraq, a Kurd, not a Shia, not an Arab, not a Persian, as someone that should be regarded with great caution, and some even regarded him as an agent of influence for Iran. Now, he shares a border with Iran. He's got no choice but to deal with them. He must live with them. And there's lots of cross-border trade. There's lots of ties. There's a Kurdish community in Iran. So there's a working relationship, yet at the same time, we've seen the Kurdish party, the PUK of the president, give sanctuary to Kurdish separatists from Iran. At the same time, we've seen Iran provide support for Sunni extremist groups such as Ansar al-Islam that was fighting the Kurds and fighting Jalal Talabani's party. And indeed, as the Iranian ambassador Kumi himself acknowledges and as the Americans repeatedly point out, on at least two occasions when the US military has captured what it claims are members of Iran's Quds Force. This is essentially an Iranian version of Green Berets with a dash of British SAS and a sprinkling of uh, Delta Force. Very committed, considerably well-trained operatives whose main purpose in life is extraterritorial operations influence. 
Some of these men have been caught in Iraq. On at least two occasions, it was the president of Iraq who intervened to either see their release and safe passage back to the border or to offer explanation for legitimate, innocent purpose for their presence in Iraq. So even as American commanders and diplomats admit, Iran has a legitimate national strategic interest in Iraq. And Iraq, one way or another, must have a relationship with Iran. As, and as Ambassador Crockett told me just last week, that's not going to be the kind of relationship we'd ever want to have with Iran. But they have to live here. Now, I can tell you, some of the Iraqi delegations that have been to Tehran have come back and told the Americans that they've been informed by Iran. You have some choices to make as Iraqi leaders. Remember, <coughs> we Iranians are a regional superpower. And our sphere of influence is increasing. We will be a nuclear power of one form or another. And bottom line, unlike your American friends, we are never leaving. You decide whose side you want to be on. Now, prior to the invasion, America's alliance of Arab states screamed blue bloody murder about their fears of how Iran would move in to capitalize on the fall of Saddam's regime. Throughout the occupation, throughout the Iraq war, those same Arab allies have screamed about it. Now, sometimes it is out of xenophobia. Sometimes it is out of strategic interest. Sometimes it's rational, sometimes it's irrational. But this has caused fractures within America's Arab alliance. Now, this has become the major issue in Iraq for American policy now is dealing with Iran's influence. Essentially, Iran owns much more of Iraq in terms of influence and sway than America does now or ever will. And it's one of the byproducts of this Sunni awakening program. These Sunnis hate Iran. They fought them for years. Most of them don't hate Shia per se because there's lots of intermarriage in Iraq. It wasn't this great Sunni-Shia divide in the past. That's one of the terrible legacies of this war. But they certainly hate the Iranians. And they're more than willing to attack Iranian interests inside Iraq. And America is now using them for that. And these American militias, these insurgents now in American-supplied vests at American-supported checkpoints, men who President Bush himself were once fighting with al-Qaeda against us are now with us fighting against al-Qaeda. These men are being used as a stick with which to beat the Iraqi government. They do put real fear and concern into the Iraqi administration. As the Iraqi government rightly points out, not only were these men attacking the, Ameri the American forces, they were anti-government forces. And I can tell you now, to this day, and Neil, I'm sure, would know this, they, they still are. When you're with these Sunni groups protecting neighbourhoods or out in Umbar, 
when the American soldiers aren't there to censor what they're saying, they'll openly tell you that their true enemy is this Iraqi government. Their true enemy are these men backed by Iran. And if you ask them, what will you do when America leaves, they say, well, we're going to keep our weapons, and that's when the real fight will begin. So Iran's influence is significant. Iran believes it's serving its strategic purposes, both within the region and in particular. It's a place where Iran believes it can bleed America, thereby gaining it leverage in another very important area, which is nuclear energy. So Iran has a lot of agendas operating here, and it's got a lot of tools with which to pursue those agendas. Great. Thanks, Michael. I thought maybe we could look to the west uh, of Iraq. And you've spent a lot of time in Syria and Lebanon and in Jordan and other things, uh, other countries, uh, Sunni Arab countries. How are they? What's their position in this? And what role are they playing in, in Iraq? And how has that changed over time? Well, I think the role of all countries that aren't the US in Iraq is exaggerated including Iran's. I think Iran has a legitimate role, as Michael said, in, in, in Iraq. And I think it has a positive role in Iraq, and I think it has a positive role in the region. I, I don't really see a negative uh, role that Iran has. Um, it's supporting resistance to the American occupation. It certainly uh, has the right to do so. It's uh, hypocritical for the Americans to criticize anybody intervening in Iraq after we uh, are there and we've destroyed the country. Um, Syria isn't a Sunni country, of course. Um, and Syria has a very mixed relationship. Um, they've managed the, the Syrian regime quite wisely to have a good relationship with just about all the parties in Iraq. Um, Talabani formed his party in, in Damascus. Um, Prime Minister Maliki was in exile in Damascus. Uh, a lot of the Sunni resistance leaders are now there. The majority of the refugees in, in Syria are, are Sunni, of course. Um, a lot of the educated and, and middle business class of, of Iraq have, have fled to Syria, especially when once Jordan has closed their border. But, uh, and Syria, of course, has a close relationship with Iran, um, one of its strategic allies. At the same time, the majority of the Syrian population being Sunni, uh, um, uh, being contiguous, in fact, with, with Iraq and having the same, uh, belonging to the same tribes, much of them are, are, are sympathetic with the, uh, with the Sunnis of Iraq. So there's an inherent tension there, a government that recognizes, a Syrian government that recognizes the government of Iraq and is close with Iran, um, both agents perceived by Sunnis as being the ones responsible for, for killing Sunnis. Uh, Syria has managed very, so far very successfully to, uh, to be friends with everybody, in including the, the, the Sudrists, who have their own representation and their own Hausa or religious school in, in Syria. And of course, Syria is also very important for Shias in general, especially Iraqi Shias, who go there as pilgrims to the, uh, one of the key shrines in Damascus. Um, Jordan. Uh, is much uh, easier to understand because it's all Sunni and they don't like Shias. Um, Shias are harassed uh, at the airport and in the street. Um, I mean, they've closed their border to Iraqis way before the Syrians did because, because they were overwhelmed and they were also worried about um, the conflict being exported. Uh, but they were always more hostile to the Shias. And I think it's an irrational fear. I, I don't know why. Jordanians would be worried about the Iranians or the Shias. Um, there's no irredentist or, or territorial ambition that I, I, any of them have. Um, but indeed, there is, among the population of Jordan and certainly the regime, a hostility uh, to, to Shias. Um, and uh, there has been a sympathy for, for the resistance. For a long time, resistance leaders used to come to Amman 
Um, it was kind of like their Davos, and that's where they would do a lot of their thinking. Uh, that changed, and uh, it, it shifted a, a bit more to Damascus. Um, now, the, the conflict in Iraq has also been exported to Lebanon. And through, well, throughout the region, we see sectarianism increasing, um, and Sunni-Shia sectarianism, in a way that we haven't seen perhaps ever, but certainly recently. And the conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran, or uh, the tensions between them, manifesting themselves especially in Lebanon, um, where the, the Saudis are backing their own Sunni militias now. Um, and you hear uh, people, uh, the Lebanese, especially on the Sunni side, view their uh, tensions through the prism of Iraq. Uh, you see posters of Saddam Hussein throughout Sunni neighborhoods all over Beirut and in northern Lebanon. Um, in, in demonstrations, the Sunnis of Lebanon s shout for uh, Saddam, for Bush, for Zarqawi, and for former Prime Minister Hariri, all at the same time. Um, Saddam sort of became a symbol of Sunni power for them. Um, and we, of course, saw fighters from Iraq uh, seeking safe haven in northern uh, Lebanon in a Palestinian camp. Um, and uh, there was a, a great deal of fighting last summer. That wasn't between the Lebanese army and Palestinians. The majority of the people that the Lebanese army were fighting were non-Palestinians, and many of them were veterans of Iraq or had been inspired by Iraq. Um, many veterans of Iraq, of uh, the jihad in Iraq, have come back to various Palestinian camps. Uh, so certainly Lebanon has been uh, destabilized um, by fighters co coming, coming there and by the, the atmosphere of Sunni-Shia tensions manifesting itself so extremely uh, there. I, I think it's important to mention uh, that there's an American occupation of Iraq. People forget about the Americans aren't just there as, as beat cops, as policemen separating the two sides. It's an American occupation. It's a foreign occupation. It's a uh, systematic violence imposed on an entire nation. Um, and while it's not as brutal as it was um, perhaps a couple of years ago, that's also because Iraq shifted. And the reason less Americans are dying is because it's no longer an insurgency or counterinsurgency to civil war. So Iraqis are fighting each other, not the American occupation as much. But American raids are extremely traumatizing and brutal and violent. And thousands and thousands of Iraqi households have experienced this horrible, shocking trauma. 24,000 Iraqis are still being held in American prisons, at least 24,000. They haven't been charged with anything. They haven't been found guilty of anything. The majority of them are innocent. Um, whatever that means, I mean, as if the Americans have a right to decide who's innocent or guilty in Iraq in the first place. But they're innocent even within the American standards. Um, because when they go on raids, they just arrest all the men of military age. If uh, an IED goes off, they arrest all the men of military age. And they can be held for years. Um, there are almost a thousand juveniles being held by the Americans as well. And even if the fraction of cases that the Americans hand over to the Iraqi courts, if the Iraqi courts find the guy innocent, the Americans have the right to continue to hold them. They're called on-hold cases. There's 500 of these case, uh, guys who are still being held by the Americans, despite having been found innocent uh, in, in Iraqi courts. Um, and when they, when they go on, in, on raids, as they, they still do in Shia and Sunni areas, um, middle of the night, they're breaking into a house to break down the walls, break down the gate, drag uh, the men out. Uh, the kids are crying and screaming. The women are terrified. They destroy the entire house looking for stuff. Uh, they don't know what it is, but if it has something in Arabic written on it, it might be propaganda. Um, so you have, I, I think we, we must never forget that there's an American occupation of Iraq, that it's very brutal and very painful, that Iraqi civilians are still dying, and that five years into the war, indeed, the war that we said was to liberate the Shias, uh, last week American planes were bombing Shia areas of Iraq and killing Shia civilians. Um, I, I think that's out outrageous, and, and uh, people should be much more upset about that. Thank you, Nir. I want to open it up to questions, but before I do that, I want a very brief question, because it's one thing I'm thinking about from your perspective on the ground and 
yours, having been on the ground quite a lot. What do you see as the current administration, U.S. administration's strategy and end objective? Not what should it be, but what do you, as you look at all the mix of policy actions and everything that is attempted to, to be uh, done on the ground with the military and all of the significant investments, if you could best describe from your perspective what you see the current strategy, because I'm sure our audience will ask about what should be done, and I, I hope they do. And a similar question, but in, in brief, you know, how, how best could you articulate uh, how you see the current strategy and its end, 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 end objective? Well, in terms of the administration, I think it's a, a strategy that is not a strategy. This is something that, from what I can gather, and, and remember, I only see these things through the prism of the commanders and diplomats that I'm meeting in Iraq. It's not often I get to come to the rarefied atmosphere of the capital here in DC. So, but I do know that from the very beginning, commanders and people from the State Department and others involved on the ground could see many of the realities that those of us who are out there mixing with the Iraqis saw as well. And sometimes they would scream to the heavens about it. I mean, it's, it, I mean I, I've had friends of mine working in various agencies or roles who would send reports up the chain and then see them come back down and they can't even recognize their own authorship anymore. To some degree, something happened here that changed that. What we're talking about with the surge being more than 30,000 troops, it required a change of mindset in American strategic thinking. Now, my feeling from what I'm hearing from folks on the ground is that was forced upon this administration, both by the loss of a public mandate and by a very frustrated military. And whilst it began before their times, I think the Petraeus and the Crockers, General Petraeus and the Ambassador Crockers, have come to represent that change. I mean, you're now employing men who the administration were calling terrorists and dead-enders. You are employing people who your own president admits were members of Al-Qaeda. That's not a shift. I believe that this war was begun with very heavy ideological blinkers and that any information or intelligence or opinion, be it from Iraqis on the ground, troops or diplomats on the ground or anyone else that did not fit that paradigm was ignored, discarded or discredited. And for a long time that charted the course of American policy in Iraq. Now eventually that cracked and gave way. And it's, the system is far from perfect and of course it never will be. But there is a different form of operation now underway in Iraq. Is there room for improvement? Does there need to be more concern for consequence? Of course. And America, fundamentally, even with right men in the right place at the right time or not, is still playing a short game. You've, your strategists barely think from election to election but your adversaries 
are playing generational games. So that's not true. Briefly, what's the U.S. strategy from your view? I think we'll there's maybe many strategies or, or no strategy. I think the fundamental one is to somehow keep things together until Bush leaves office. Um, and uh, as, a, as a result, they've created these policies that are perhaps undermining Iraq's future, such as creating new militias, creating institutions that are separate from the Iraqi state, like neighborhood advisory councils, district advisory councils, these separate government bodies that aren't part of the Iraqi state, um, further um, dividing Iraq. And so you have walled-off areas that we're creating to, to buy time, to buy some peace, creating the government institutions there that aren't part of the Iraqi government, creating new security forces or these militias that aren't part of the Iraqi government, even creating separate power stations in these areas that aren't part of the Iraqi power grid, which means that they're cut off in other ways from the Iraqi state. And the guys that we put in charge who are making a profit from these power stations have a financial incentive to never let the area be connected to the, to the uh, Iraqi state. So I think there is that, but I think there's always been a tension between U.S. military strategy and U.S. government strategy, CPA strategy, um, State Department strategy. Um, I think that when I, when I spoke to the National Security Council guys, who deal with Iraq, they told me that um, their strategy is to somehow get Iraq to the point of the uh, uh, new elections in December 2009, and, and that would be victory if we can somehow succeed in a peaceful transition of power to a new government. Um, it might not be a perfect democracy, but uh, they're, they're hoping to get to that direction. Um, but there's no political reconciliation, so it's hard to imagine how it will happen. Frankly, I, I understand the Iraq a lot better than I understand the Americans. <laughs> well, thank you, Nir. Um, I'd like to open it up to questions, and first would like to give the, the news media the first opportunity. This is your chance to be Anderson Cooper. To <laughs> um, if anyone from the news media has a question. If not, um, if you have a question, just please raise your hand and uh, state your name and, and an affiliation uh, uh, if you'd like to share that with us. Uh, in the back. Uh, news media. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Brian Bennett from Time Magazine. I've had the fortune of having both these gentlemen as former colleagues. And uh, I wanted to ask for your assessment of this idea that um, the Iraqi parliament could actually serve as a negotiating body uh, between all these different militias. I mean, effectively, you have. You, you guys have both spoken about this, that these militias are basically in a struggle for power and influence in Iraq. And all of them, the Badr Corps, the uh, Sadr um, Medi Army, um, the constellation of Sunni militias, uh, have people who are act acting as their proxies in the Iraqi parliament. And I'm wondering if this is a possible release valve for negotiating through this in the future. I, I don't see that. Um, I don't see the Iraqi parliament as being very important or effective anyway. And so maybe people are outside um, when the actual militia leaders aren't part of the government, whether in the ministries or the, the cabinet or the, or the parliament. Um, and certainly there's no representation on the awakening group for the Sunni militia side in the parliament. Um, and any attempt to pass a law or have any progress breaks down in uh, serious infighting in the parliament. I, I just don't view it as a serious body. 
Do you agree? And, Absolutely. And, and then the provincial elections, and talking about other yeah. bodies that will be formed, what's your prediction for whether they'll well, happen and what <laughs> impact it will have on the, on the situation? Well, the Council of Representatives, uh, you know, the central Iraqi parliament, is in many ways ineffective and certainly not truly representative, particularly in terms of the Sunni community. I mean, the Sunni members of that parliament emerged at a certain time in, in Iraq's current political development when more or less there was no one else. I think that are they to appear, the Sunnis' true political leadership is yet to step forward. And as one of the chief political advisors to then General Ray Odiano, Lieutenant General Ray Odiano, who was the number two American commander in Iraq. He essentially ran the war from day to day. As that advisor said to me, we need to be looking at these Sunni awakening councils, these militias, as a nascent political organization. Because that's what, even from the beginning, as, as Nia saying, when they're doing their thinking in Damascus or Amman, they're looking to translate military gains or military pressures or into some kind of a political exchange. And that process has not yet matured. So just in that single regard, the parliament is inherently limited in how it can effectively bring about, bring about change. And it can pass a legislation if the Americans are banging their heads together long enough but let's see how it's enacted when the Ministry of Interior is controlled by one very powerful faction that is no friend of America, and the Ministry of Health is controlled by another powerful faction that is no friend of America. So you can have whatever you want on paper. You be a Sunni and you walk into a, an Iraqi hospital. Let's see what happens. Now, in terms of provincial elections, this is fascinating. I mean, obviously this was recently cited as one of the great successes of the so-called political surge, that the Iraqi government, Iraqi parliament had finally passed legislation to enable already belated provincial elections with yet another actual administrative law yet to be drawn up. But then that was rejected by the presidential council. Now, finally, after enormous backroom dealing, it's back on the table. That legislation is once more at play. But there's something very interesting going on with the provincial elections, and Nir has very articulately touched upon this. What you're going to see, and particularly through the prism of security responsibility, is more and more power for control and direction of security forces being decentralized into the provinces. The governors are going to have much more say over the security needs and deployments in their own provinces than they have had so far. Now, when you look at each of those provinces, they're certainly not working as a unified nation state, part of a unified nation state. There is no real sense of federalism. And you have to look at who these governors are and who their parties are, and who their militias are, and who their factions are, and who their foreign sponsors are. So even the provincial elections 
in a significant way will further erode any sense of a real Iraqi nation state, let alone this elusive joke of a functioning Iraqi government. Thanks. But I just want to add that to the extent that there is a government body that's at all representative, the parliament is the most representative one mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. within Iraq, much more than uh, the executive. Um, with the executive trying to cut deals with the Americans for permanent presence, whereas the parliament has been demanding a timetable for an American withdrawal for a long time. Uh, so while it might be less representative on the Sunni side because of Sunni boycotts or the elections and so forth, certainly on the Shia side it's much more representative, um, hence the presence of more Sadrist and Fadila supporters, etc. Great. Thank you. Next question in the back. Uh, sure. Gareth Porter, Enterprise Service. Uh, Two-part question, if I may. The first one is, uh, how credible is the argument now being made by the uh, Bush administration and John McCain that the recent uh, uh, offensive uh, in Basra was essentially uh, planned and executed by the al-Maliki regime without uh, consulting with the United States? And secondly, if the United States is seriously interested in political reconciliation, as a basis for uh, eventual U.S. Withdrawal, withdrawal, wouldn't it be more interested in allying itself with uh, Muqtad al-Sadr, uh, who is the only uh, political personality on the scene in, in uh, Iraq, who has in fact attempted to reach out to the other side of the sectarian divide? Uh, so if both of you would comment on those, I'd appreciate it. Can you take a first crack, Michael? Um. <coughs> I, I don't think anybody really knows, but I'm skeptical that the Prime Minister Maliki could initiate something like this on his own. He has no power base. It's true. Um, he, he doesn't have his own militia. He has some security forces that are loyal to him, for example, in Karbala. Um, that I, I think because of one of the, the commanders is a relative of his. But I think no matter what, he's not the guy calling the shots. It's either the Supreme Council or it's the Americans, and in general, uh, and this is an Amer American occupation of Iraq, and uh, most of the shots are called by the Americans, especially when it comes to the security forces, um, especially with the army that has a better relationship uh, with the Americans. I, I think one of the things we saw in, in the battles in the South was just w what a joke the Iraqi security forces are, the Iraqi army, and were it not for the American Air Force and American armor backing them up, then uh, there would have been no reason for the Mahdi army to, to sue for peace. Um, because they could have easily overwhelmed the, Ira the Iraqi army. Um, I forgot the second part of the question. Yeah, that's the first one. But just, just, well, just before we move on from that, I mean, obviously no, none of us here were privy to the operational planning details for the offensive in Basra. But I, all I can tell you is that my sources within multinational force Iraq in Baghdad, and I literally just came from the Pentagon now, and since talking to sources of mine in other American agencies, for what it's worth, they insist that they did not drive this. Now, they've driven a lot of other things. They forced the Iraqi government of Maliki to come to the party on the surge. They call it the Iraqi surge, where the Iraqi government flooded Baghdad itself with its own troops. They maintained vehemently that in this instance, that was not the case. Now, one can't help but be skeptical of everything that one hears from everyone in this conflict, as in all conflicts. 
but I would find it hard to see why it would be in American interest to launch a half-assed offensive like this against an entrenched militia using ill-trained, ill-equipped forces from essentially a, an opposing Shia faction. Especially when they were focused on Mosul and uh, they have other priorities. Exactly. So It seems I, strange, but I just can't imagine the Iraqis doing I, this independently. I, I think you're right, though, that I, I sense that it is Iraqi-driven, but it's not Maliki. Maliki, Nia's right. Maliki has no power in that country, or there's very tight constraints to it. I mean, his party, Dawa, you know, was long split into factions, which, you know, have found accommodation and, and, and do coalesce, but where's their militia? Who has to listen to Maliki? What can he do to you if you don't listen? When he ordered the governor of Basra to, to stand down, the governor of Basra first refused, and he contacted his military commander down there, he commands a division, and the commander said, Mr. Prime Minister, I would follow your order, but out of a full division of troops, I can only rely on a company, um, company of which probably isn't even loyal to Maliki. So, the Prime Minister really is a victim of the very powerful forces that circle around him, including the Americans, including Bada, including several others. So, in many ways, he was a compromise choice for the Prime Minister in the first place. Yeah, the Americans decided that they don't like Jaffrey, so they forced in Maliki. Then they didn't like Maliki, and you had Democratic senators calling for his removal, and rumors yep. that he'd be replaced by Alawi. And it suited Sada to have to put Maliki in there and push him just over the line because he was no threat to Sada, and Sada saw an opportunity to make ground against Ifti and Bada and, and his other opponents. So, you know. The second part of the question, if, if I have it from, from Gareth, is why isn't it not in U.S. interests to work with Sutter? Because he's a nationalist, right? Is that a good and can re reach out to the Sunnis as a nationalist. Why, why not? I don't know what U.S. interests are or what the Americans think they are. Um, I, 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 Sunnis are still very alienated from Sutter. I mean, there was yeah. a point, there was a, a high point when there was collaboration against the American occupation, and that was a moment for optimism on my part because it meant in 2004 that Iraqis can have some common narrative of resistance to the Americans, and from that they can create a new state, and at least there won't be a civil war. By the second battle of Fallujah, that was over, and now, um, across the board, Sunnis are this, they view all the Shias basically as the same. But there, people do remember that Sutter did fight the Americans, and uh, they do associate the Supreme Council, I think, more with Iran. Uh, but I don't think you'd see any alliances between Sunnis and, and Muqtada forming until later on, uh, perhaps after the, the in, as elections are approaching, uh, when there's more reason for conflict between the Federalists and um, or, or even the Separatists and uh, like the Supreme Council, as opposed to people who are hostile to the idea of greater federalism like Muqtada and like some of the Sunni parties. Um, certainly not anytime soon. Um, but uh, you'd have to tell me what American interests are in Iraq in the, in the first place. Great. Yeah, and, and that's a fair point. But uh, in, in my opinion, Muqtada, from American perspectives, was up for grabs. At a certain point, I think if if the Americans had had played the Sardis issue in a more mature way, I don't think there needed to be that hostility. Or to put it simply, they could have made him a better offer than Iran did.
because he's no real friend of Iran either. He's very hostile to. He's him. very much an Iraqi nationalist, and that's very much his platform and and his appeal. Yet, nonetheless, he's now found himself in a position where he's been forced by reality to develop a relationship of kind with the Iranians. Now, pity the poor Iranian intelligence officer who's Muqtada's handler, because that would be an absolute nightmare. Because he may take your money and he may use your influence here and there, but he doesn't toe the line. Yet, Muqtada has been under a lot of pressure. Muqtada is still popular on the streets. But as we've touched upon, you know, hardline elements of his militia forces have been chipped away and drawn aside and they have been hardened, trained better, equipped better, funded better, no longer answer to Muqtada and are serving other purposes. And this is something that a member of the Prime Minister's office once told me, that the Dawa party, correct me if I'm wrong, but at one point Dawa essentially fled to Iran. And then at some point there was the separation where they moved, like Prime Minister Maliki moved to Damascus and others moved elsewhere. The way this member of Maliki's team described it to me is that the Iranians put us under such pressure in so many ways that fractures would begin to appear. And those fractures suited the Iranians. And they could then carve people off, divide and conquer, and make use of, of whatever it is that they can. So I believe we've seen some element of that happening here. Because Mukhtada, though he's a prominent Shia figure, doesn't suit everyone's agenda, and he certainly doesn't fit a cookie-cutter version of any Iranian gender. So in some ways, Mukhtar's as much of a problem for Iranian interests as he is for American interests. But I think America missed the boat on that. And I think it would be very hard now for America to enlist Mukhtar's aid, and Nia's right. My greatest fear is that the Sunni-Shia divide that now exists in Iraq is so draped in blood that can it ever be healed, it may not be something that our grandchildren might see or even their children. That's my great fear. Ordinary Iraqis don't bear this in their hearts. But the events of the last few years have so deeply scarred them. The physical cleansing of their communities and the political and paramilitary machineries that dominate their communities can still inflame the streets with provocative acts. I mean, I can tell you, one of my guys in my staff attended a Sunni Shia wedding just last week. But to do that, the Sunni, the Sunni groom had to prepare the decorative wedding car and drive it to essentially a checkpoint, where his friend, a Shia, had prepared a second decorative car where the Sunni groom could covertly move into her neighborhood very quickly, go and get her with the celebrations, bring her back out, come to the checkpoint, transfer her back to the car, which we fortunately filmed, and then they could have their wedding. So in their hearts, Iraqis, most of them on the street, don't bear this sectarian hatred. But events and political realities are forcing it upon them. I think Muqtada being in Iran is losing credibility among many of his yeah. supporters. Um, many of them are more hostile to the U.S. and to Iran 
then uh, than he is. Um, I think many of them would like would like to continue the fight. When I was hanging out with them in February, uh, they were very upset, both at the Supreme Council, uh, they felt was persecuting them, or um, or the Iraqi security forces, the the army, and at the Americans. And they were, uh, they were also very defensive about Muqtada being in Iran. And there were songs that the Mahdi army had that were saying, uh, our leader would never leave Iraq. He would rather die than leave Iraq. Um, they felt very insecure about the fact that he was uh, escaped uh, to Iran for safety. And I think they would certainly be hostile to him striking a deal with the Americans because they would perceive him to be a sellout like all the other I Iraqi Shia leaders who have done that. And, and indeed, as American commanders on the ground openly concede, now, if you see the Supreme Council or Bada as more of a more of an you know a, a pro-Iranian or, or more you know vehemently you know theologically Shia um, organization, what America has been doing by default is been consolidating their power vis-à-vis Muqtada. America still has virtually no human intelligence in Iraq. It's very limited. I mean, yes, America has, after five years, been developing networks, but it's still fraught with enormous difficulty. Now it's relying on the Ba'athists that it's now enlisted, and 70,000 of whom are on being paid by your taxes. But say in the Shia community, it's exceedingly difficult. Now, a lot of the targeting profiles and the intel packets that have been given to the American Special Forces and agencies whom we can't name, who are going out there attacking these Shia targets, are getting them from the Iraqi government. An Iraqi government whose security apparatus is dominated by the Supreme Council and Ba'ada factions, not by Muqtada's faction. So essentially, America's been going out there, and more so in the past than now, but attacking, arresting, or killing Muqtada's men and his commanders while leaving his political rivals all but untouched. So America in some ways has been indirectly consolidating at least one form of, say, Iranian influence in Iraq. What I love about these guys is that it makes it easy to moderate a discussion between <laughs> the two of you. Such a wealth of knowledge. We're, we're running short on time, and we probably only have time for one more question. So um, if we could go right down front here. Uh, Cliff for Birdie with Fountainhead Associates. And Michael, you, you mentioned that um, that um, al-Qaeda, that we shouldn't be fooled that this is a war against al-Qaeda. And I think most of us would agree that it's a lot more complex than that. And, and uh, that that would be the case, but it is clear that that it is their goal to kind of instigate sectarian violence, and, and we found that that to be the case. But I'd like you to, for you to talk about the influence that they've had, the influence that they currently have, and the influence that they would have if um, the American presence were were to be significantly reduced or or withdrawn. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but certainly my understanding of of Al-Qaeda is that you know, the old school or the classic school of Al-Qaeda, much more represented by Osama bin Laden and Dwahri, they don't, they 
do not push for some grand scheme of attack against the Shia per se. The way I experience that on the ground is that that is a legacy of the new Al-Qaeda. That's the Al-Qaeda of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, a man who was much more brutal, much more vicious, much more pathological than the Al-Qaeda that, that we have come to understand Al-Qaeda to be. Indeed, remember, when Zarqawi first began in Iraq, I mean, he'd been, along with other jihadis, shopping around for a new platform, a new theater in which to wage jihad after Afghanistan was lost. Well, you gave it to him on a platter. And he went there, and this was his time and his place to make his mark. And by goodness, didn't he? Now, fundamental to his strategy was that we need to awaken the Sunni nations, this sleeping giant. And the way to do that is we provoke the Shia, who are ungodly anyway, and are worthy of attack. Attack them, they'll take the Sunni back, and the Sunni will rise up. I think once he really sharpened that point of sectarian attack, which hadn't been a feature of the war until I believe that he really crafted it, others then manipulated that to their benefit as well, and it all inflamed. So this sectarian war in some sense and this sectarian cleavage that may, let's hope, not be irretrievably a feature of Iraqi life now, at least for coming generations, is in many ways a legacy of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. In terms of their influence now, at its best, al-Qaeda in Iraq was, what, 2%, 5% of the what we would know as the insurgency. Now, they were headline-grabbing. They were driving trucks full of explosives into crowded markets. They could slaughter people en masse. They could really instill fear. And at its so-called height, it felt able to declare an Islamic state, so-called. They certainly had enormous influence and, and considerable freedom of movement in places like Anbar and parts of Diyala and elsewhere. But with the Ba'athists and, and the nationalist insurgents having turned upon them, very much that's been eroded. Now, in the future, one, one scenario that I, I can foresee coming if, if something radical isn't done to avoid it. Once America starts pulling out, even once it gets to a level where you still have American troops in the country, but really you only have enough troops to protect yourselves, Essentially, you're nothing but force protection mode. Then you'll start seeing all these different interests and factions pressing for their advantage. Now, come that time, who's going to be paying these Sunni militias that America's created and is currently paying? You better keep paying them. Well, Jordan and Saudi Arabia probably will. There you go. The proxy war. Now, in this proxy war, and it may be high-intensity, low-intensity conflict. Ambassador Crocodile himself says 
that if we disengage prematurely, if we have any notion of timetables preset that are not related to conditions on the ground, we're most likely heading towards proxy war. Regional proxy war atop some of the richest oil reserves in the world. Do you think a hundred bucks a barrel is expensive now? Now, in that conflict, you'll have Shia militias and forces who won't be entirely unified and they'll be intra-fighting, but they'll by and large be able to direct combat power towards, say, the Sunni. The Kurds will maintain their line and they'll let the Arabs kill each other off. Everyone will have their external sponsors. Saudi, Saudi Arabia and Jordan and Egypt and, and others have long had reservations about you know, what they feared, rightly or wrongly, would be Shia dominance in Iraq, which has come to fruition. There's long been money flowing to Zarqawi's Al-Qaeda from these states, not from the governments, but from these states. That's what's funded Al-Qaeda in Iraq, as it did you know, the, not, the September 11 bombings. But also there was money trickling into the sheikhs and the, 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 the larger Sunni players. But America frowned upon that money flowing in from its Arab allies to these Sunni figures who invariably would have that money trickle down into the insurgency that was killing American troops. Well, now that you've bought off that insurgency and there's a current political accommodation because it temporarily suits everyone's convenience, America's open to force it on that flow of money. America has less concern now about Saudi Arabia pumping money into Anbari Sheikh or pumping it into American-backed militias. So should we come to this situation where America's pulled out or drawn down to a point where all it can do is protect itself and the blood starts flowing literally up to the razor wire of its bases, where's Al-Qaeda going to fit? Right, Al-Qaeda right now is it in the state where it always should have been? America gave Al-Qaeda the oxygen in Iraq. Al-Qaeda is now, not to be trite, but the pebble in the shoe. Yes, it still has the ability to, to launch spectacular attacks, sending suicide bombers into crowded marketplaces, but it no longer can, can own territory as it once did. Al-Qaeda exists in many countries across the world and poses a, a terrorist threat. But can it, you know, have its own shadow state? No. Okay, so that's now gone. Al-Qaeda will always be in Iraq. It will always have some ability to attack, as it does right now. But that's minor compared to, to, the, other, to the other dynamics that are really at play. So if we come to a, an Iraq post-America, where we're going to see fighting like we've just seen in, in Basra. It's not going to be like Lebanon in the 1980s with militia on militia with foreign sponsors. It's going to be Lebanon on steroids. And in that scenario, the Sunnis, who were with Al-Qaeda because they were forced to, and then turned against Al-Qaeda because finally someone started to listen and Al-Qaeda overplayed their hand. In that scenario without America, Al-Qaeda might become useful again. So someone had better make sure that someone's bankrolling these Sunni militias. And if it's not America directly, it had better be America's allies. Because otherwise, Al-Qaeda will get a renewed lease on life. 
you basically have to make sure that it continues to be against the interests of Iraq Sunnis to allow Al-Qaeda to have sanctuary. Because otherwise, you're going to see them come back in some new mutated manifestation. That's what I'm thinking. I know we've run over on time. I don't know if you want to add anything in conclusion. Well, I think Al-Qaeda is strategically irrelevant in Iraq, just like it is actually strategically irrelevant internationally. I mean, they, they killed 3,000 people. That was terrible. But it's a pinprick, especially for the U.S. Um, and they, they, they can't really threaten the U.S. I think the whole focus on Al-Qaeda, I think, is silly. And McCain is certainly lying when he says Iraq can never become an Al-Qaeda state if the Americans leave. Um, if, if they were to ever have bases, after September 11, obviously, the Americans will bomb them. So then they're not going to have any sort of strategic, uh, geographic location. Um, and Al-Qaeda in Iraq maybe has an unfortunate name because it makes people think that it has something to do with bin Laden, whereas it doesn't. In the Zarqawi period, um, the, the whole killing of Shias was made the uh, maybe traditional Al-Qaeda types very uncomfortable. And it gave jihad a bad name, and it even reduced the recruits. And, it, and you saw clerics by late 2005 throughout the Sunni world um, no longer advocating for the young men to go fight in Iraq because they were just uncomfortable as jihad was too bloody and civilians were being killed. Even if they were Shias and we don't like Shias, um, it doesn't mean that they're infidels. Um, Zawahiri and bin Laden didn't have that same anti-Shia strain. Um, but Al-Qaeda is also a very cool name to have in Iraq. It's a good brand name, which is why Zarqawi chose it. And these days, a lot of the Al-Qaeda guys are just teenage gangbangers stealing cars um, and, and enforcing power in their community and calling themselves Al-Qaeda. But you should never think that this has anything to do with um, bin Laden or some global jihad. Um, and it's certainly not a threat. And as we saw, how easily they were actually um, pushed out once the Sunnis decided that, they, that it wasn't in their interest to, to house them anymore. In the, in the next week or so, we're going to have a lot of uh, reports on Iraq with Ambassador uh, Crocker and General Petraeus coming. And I think today's discussion was really a rich addition. I uh, want to thank you for sharing your experience and knowledge on the ground and hope you can uh, join me in thanking.